listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. take your seats. Please open with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 is toward the back of your New Testament, conveniently located right after 1 Peter. So you can find that one and then just keep going to the right. Hey, before we get into our study, I just want to bring something to your attention that maybe some of you saw online. We announced it online, but um, I want to talk to you about it in person. So for a long time, you know, we've, we've been here in this building for the entire existence of our church, and it's been good for us, but we do feel like we, we've kind of capped it out in a way, like we're getting diminishing returns, not just here in this space, but, you know, for our kids' space, it's very important. Uh, our middle school class, for example, meets in a hallway. That's not something we're proud of, but um, right now that's what we're making work. So for a while, we've been saving, we've been preparing, we've been praying for our own place, and uh, we've, we've followed a couple rabbit trails, as you know, and, uh, and those have been good things. We've learned a lot through them, and God's used them in our congregation. Well, right now, we have a, a really good opportunity. You know, we've been praying for a good opportunity, and no great opportunities have kind of fallen in our lap, but until now, right? So we, we have one where another church in town had started an extension campus, and they're closing that campus, and we have the opportunity to move into it. And the price is it's half of market value for this, this price. It's being offered per square foot. It has amazing kids' rooms. It's, it's 24,000 square feet. To give you any, any kind of, this gym floor is about 8,000 square feet. So it's about, it's 24,000 square feet. The big upgrade is with kids. And, you know, we think about buildings, it's kind of like, uh, it's not the purpose, not the goal, but it's like the family car. We're a family and we need a minivan to get our kids to soccer practice. That's what a building is, is it's, uh, it's not the thing that we exist for, but it, it facilitates the things that we do as a family. And so we've been praying, God, you know, we need a family car for a long time. And so it seems like this is going to work out. We're not, we haven't signed anything yet, but before we do... We want you guys to see it. We want you to pray over it. And so that's going to be happening today at 1 p.m. We're going to go there for an open house, okay? So we want all of you guys to come. So I know you had plans at 1. You're just going to cancel them. You're going to come, and you're going to be fine. Or you're going to invite your friend who is going to come with you to do your other thing. And you're going to come, and you're going to come, and we're going to go into all the rooms of this place. There's a lot of rooms, so we've got to have us all there. And so uh, we're going to pray over this place. We're going to just continue seeking God. You know, we haven't signed anything, so we, we need still God's direction and guidance and make sure that this is the right step. Guys, it will require us all to coalesce and step up if we do this. Here's why. Because we'll be going from a little to a lot. But we believe that this could be a way that, let's put it this way, it could raise the ceiling on what's possible uh, as far as ministry goes for our church. More people we hope to reach, more kids we hope to minister to in, in better settings is a great youth area that we would be able to use as we seek to build our youth group. So there's a lot of really, really positive things about this place, and um, the way it's come together, we're really confident that this might be how the Lord's leading us. So you need to be there today, 1 o'clock, open house. We're not going to do it again next week. This is the time. Today, 1 o'clock, uh, the address is right there. Write it down and be there. Uh, one o'clock, we're going to pray. We're going to talk. If you have any questions, that'd be a great time for you to get some of those questions answered because we want to all be working together, unified in this, moving together. And guys, what, what excites me about this is this is a step of faith. 
And that's when we grow, isn't it? When we take steps of faith, when God may stretches us a little bit. This is what this will be, but it won't just be for you, know, you individually. It's going to be for us as a congregation. I really believe that this could be something that draws us together, that builds our faith, and draws us closer to the Lord as we're in this together. So I want you to be there today, 1 o'clock. Now we're going to get into our study. We're currently in a series on Sunday mornings called Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, that's the title we've given to our series in which we're studying through First and Second Peter. We finished First Peter at the end of November. Now we're getting into Second Peter. And, you know, Second Peter is really one of the most, I would say, neglected um, books in the Bible. It's not studied a lot. Um, but as we've been reading it, as I've been preparing, as we've been studying together, guys, I don't know if you've seen this, but I certainly have. There is, this is super relevant to life today for the issues that we deal with today. There is so much that is so incredibly relevant. Today we're going to be looking at a couple questions uh, referring to, hey, why does doctrine matter? Like how important is doctrine? And secondly, how do we differentiate good doctrine from bad doctrine. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We've got a little bit longer passage that I'm going to read to you, so hang with me. You can read along in your Bibles or follow on the screen. 2 Peter chapter 2. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, Godly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the world, for as that righteous man lived among them uh, day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defining passion and despise authority. Bold and willfully, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by the storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Let's pray. This is God's word. Lord, we thank you for these words. And Lord, we remember that just as your promises are true promises, your warnings are also true warnings. So Lord, may we hear the warnings of your word 
And in them, Lord, may we be redirected to the truth. Lord, may you use these words to build us up in our faith, to protect us, to warn us, to guide us. Lord, we pray that we'd be receptive to all that your word has for us to hear and to receive today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we, you know, what we do here at Whitefields, we like to study the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. There's certain chapters that you might want to you know, skip if, it, if you weren't doing that. This might be one of those. But I think it's important that we actually study these chapters. Sometimes those are the most important ones, right? The ones that you might want to skip over if you were just uh, picking and choosing. So recently, I've been reading the book White Fang to my kids, Jack London's White Fang. Maybe you read it in school or you remember the story. In the opening scene, here's what happens. There's a sled dog, right? They're in the Arctic. There's a sled dog team in the Arctic. And the team is made up of six dogs and two men. Six dogs and two men. Now, one day they're in camp and one of the men counts the dogs and he counts seven dogs. And he's like, wait a second, I thought we had six dogs. Counts again, still seven dogs. They're in the middle of nowhere. How do they just grow by one dog? Well, of course, this dog isn't a dog at all. It's a wolf, or at least a half wolf, and they call it the she-wolf. Okay, so this wolf, dog-wolf thing, starts coming around their camp all the time. And this wolf starts coming around, hanging out with their dogs during feeding time. So whenever they put out the food, this other dog shows up, and then there's seven, and they all eat together. And then this dog starts playing with the other dogs and hanging out with them. It's very playful. All the dogs love it. And the guys, the two men, are like, wow, this is cute, you know. Oh, this is nature, you know. This other dog just joins us, and now we got seven. How nice. Except then... That half dog, half wolf, the she-wolf, she starts leading the other dogs away from the camp. She starts trying to isolate them. And then guess what happens? She gets them further and further away from camp, and then she kills them. And this happens three times until Bill, who is one of the two men, Bill says, that's it, I got to put a stop to this. So he starts chasing after this she-dog wolf thing, and he's going to kill it with a gun. But guess what happens? She lures Bill away from the camp and kills him too. All in all, they lose all their dogs, and one guy's life gets saved but barely. And the point is this, the tactic of wolves, what is it? Well, we see it clearly in this story, but we know it from nature as well. Here's the tactic of wolves. Number one, infiltrate. Number two, ingratiate, which means like make yourself ingratiated. Thirdly, isolate and then destroy. Infiltrate, ingratiate, isolate, and destroy. That's really interesting because in Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. In the Bible, the relationship between God and his people is often described as a relationship between sheep and a shepherd. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But for example, Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 100 says, we are God's people, the sheep of his pasture. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd and as the gate for the sheep, the entrance point. And so when Jesus tells us that there will be false prophets who will be like wolves, even though they wear sheep's clothing, what he's telling us is that there will be people who seek to do what? Infiltrate, ingratiate, isolate, and destroy. And they will, they will do that to God's people, right? And the, the way they will hurt them is through false teaching and through taking advantage of people for selfish gain. 
False teaching and taking advantage of people for selfish gain. The Apostle Paul uh, talked about this as well. In Acts 20, we read about a time when Paul had started a church in Ephesus, and then he was leaving. You know, in those days, it wasn't like you could just fly back to Ephesus for the weekend, right? He, as he left Ephesus, he knew he's probably never going to see these people again. He's handing the church over to local leaders who've been raised up through that ministry. Now they're going to take over and lead as Paul takes off. And here's what Paul says to them in his parting words. Be, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, be on alert." So Paul told us to be on alert and watch out. Jesus told us to beware of wolves in sheep clothing. And, and here in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter also gives us a warning about false teachers or false prophets. And again, just as the promises of God are real promises, the warnings of God are true warnings, and we should heed them as such. We should take them seriously. Today's message is titled Wolves in Sheep's Clothing, and there are three important things for us to consider in regard to this topic, and that'll be our outline that we'll walk through for the remainder of our time. Number one, why doctrine matters. Number two, what motivates false teachers. And number three, how to recognize false teaching. Now, why does doctrine matter? Every now and then I'll meet somebody who says something like, hey, I'm into Jesus, but I'm not into theology. I'm not into doctrine and stuff. Christianity is about loving each other and doing good and knowing Jesus, but we don't need all that. Doctrine and theology just kind of muddies the water and takes us away from the, the heart of what it is to know Jesus. Guys, I don't agree with that, and I don't think you should either. Uh, doctrine matters a lot. Doctrine, what is a doctrine? A doctrine is something you believe. It's a, it's a set of beliefs, and everybody has doctrine. If you're an atheist, you have a doctrine, right? You, you have things that you believe about God. Those are theological assertions. Those are doctrines. An agnostic person who says, well, I don't know, maybe there is a God, maybe there isn't. That's a doctrinal position. You know, they say, well, maybe we can't know anything about God. Again, you're making a doctrinal position. Everybody has doctrine. You can't avoid it. The question is, is your doctrine good? Is your doctrine accurate? And what does your doctrine do to you in your life? How does it cause you to live? Doctrine matters for two reasons. Number one, doctrine matters because it has practical implications for your life. And number two, it matters because it has eternal, uh, eternal implications for your soul. So practical implications and eternal implications. It has practical implications for your life. So what you believe about God, what you believe about the future, that informs how you feel about yourself as a person. It, it informs how you feel about the future. It, it informs how you believe uh, that your life has meaning and purpose and value. Those are real, tangible, practical impacts that affect the way that you feel and the way that you live every single day. And those are affected by what you believe about God. So what you believe about God absolutely matters, and it matters practically. It will affect the decisions you make in your life. This is why in writing to Titus, who was a young pastor, Paul, as a mentor, writes to him and says, teach that which accords with sound doctrine. Okay, here, here's another one. Doctrine has eternal implications. That was part of our 
two points, right? Doctrine has eternal implications for your soul. The word theology means the study of God. Jesus told us that the essence of our lives, the essence of eternal life, is to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So in the, in the first chapter of this letter here in 2 Peter, we've seen it already. He keeps using this phrase, in the knowledge of him, in the knowledge of God. He keeps talking about it. Peter's telling us that the essence of God's call on your life is the essence, uh, it's, it's the call to relationship with God, which means the essence is to know God. At the end of this letter, Peter finishes this by, by praying for us. He says, may you grow in the grace and the knowledge of of our Lord Jesus Christ. So knowing God matters, therefore theology matters. Our goal is to know God, then we want to know him for who he truly is. For example, if you say to me, Nick, I like you, and when I think about you, I like to think of you as an Italian plumber from the Bronx. Well, I would say, hey, there's nothing wrong with being an Italian plumber from the Bronx. I'm sure there's a lot of really great ones out there who you could meet. The problem is that's not who I am. So if you want to know me for who I am actually, then you have to deal with who I am actually. You actually have to get to know, okay, who are you? Rather than just saying, well, I like to think of you as being like this. But that's what people do with God, isn't it? They say, well, you know, when I think about God, I like to imagine him like this. Again, do we want a God who is a creation of our own imaginations and a figment of our imaginations? Or do we want to deal with the true, one and true God who exists whether, no matter how we think of him? He doesn't change. We want to deal with him for who he actually is. That's why doctrine matters. One day Jesus asked his disciples a really important question. He said, hey, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, uh, they gave a list. They say, some say you're like Elijah reincarnated. Some say you're John the Baptist, you know, and you didn't die, you just kind of changed your name. And some say that you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus said, all right, all right. But who do you say that I am? And guys, that is perhaps the most important question that has ever existed, ever been asked. And God asked that same question of us today, right? Who do you say that he is? And Peter responded and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, Simon, bar Jonah, you know, Simon, son of Jonah or son of John. It wasn't flesh and blood. It wasn't other people who told you this, but God revealed this to you. And guys, here's the deal. That question, who do you say Jesus is? That is such an important question. It determines not only your entire identity, but it determines your entire eternity, your destiny. And guess what? That is a doctrinal question, isn't it? Who do you say that he is? That is a doctrinal question. So doctrine matters because it has practical implications for your life and it has eternal implications for your soul. Doctrine matters and sound doctrine does good things. Let me, let me run you through some things that sound doctrine and good doctrine does. Number one, it protects you from error. So in Titus 1 verse 9, we, we read about that, you know, that you'll be protected from error. The best way to protect yourself from fakes and counterfeits and things that are false is to become very acquainted with the real thing and with the truth. 
Okay, next, uh, here's another thing good doctrine, sound doctrine does. It nourishes your soul. I like this verse in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, and I think in Matthew chapter 4. In his letter to Timothy, Paul encourages Timothy. He says, constantly nourish his soul. He says, nourish your soul on the words of faith and sound doctrine. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, do you remember? He, he said, turn these rocks into bread. Jesus had been fasting. He was very hungry. And Jesus replied with a verse from the Bible, by the way, and he said, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus and Paul are both telling us that just as food feeds our physical bodies, the word of God nourishes us spiritually. It nourishes your soul, helping you stay healthy and strong. Third thing sound doctrine does. It cleanses and renews your mind. I got some verses there for you on that. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about washing with the water of God's word. The pure water of God's word is the opposite of filth. It cleanses our minds. It renews us. Um, it brings about transformation in our lives. Fourth thing that good doctrine does, it serves as fuel for worship. It serves as fuel for worship. If I told you to drive from here to uh, Miami, at some point, you're either going to need to put more fuel in the tank or you're going to run out of gas, right? And, I mean, you can only go so far. Now, there, there are so many places in the Bible where we see people who encounter God in a, in a way that causes them to immediately, they see something about God, they come to know something about God, and immediately, or they, they know some truth about God's character or God's actions, and suddenly they're moved to worship right now, in this moment, right? And good doctrine, it's like gasoline. You put it in your tank so that you can keep going further, it propels you further, and you can throw it on a fire if you want to see a flame that's already going flame up. So Good doctrine is like gasoline. Sound doctrine is fuel for worship. Doctrine matters. But guess what? There's a lot of bad doctrine. So not all doctrine's good. There's a lot of bad doctrine out there that's being promoted in, in lots of places. Someone showed me a TikTok video uh, the other day, which uh, if you're looking for sound doctrine, TikTok maybe is not the best place to go. But I was looking at this TikTok video, and it was a video that this young guy had made of himself teaching a particular scripture from the Bible and giving like his own twist on it, right? Which, by the way, there's a good axiom out there. If it's new, it's probably not true. And if it's true, it's definitely not new. And so, you know, anytime somebody comes and they have a new twist on something, that's always suspect. So some guy on TikTok making videos, he's got some theological assertions he's making about how you should really read a certain passage of the Bible. And he was totally twisting it and, and saying something that that scripture was never intended to mean. Now, there's plenty of stuff like that. You don't have to go looking very hard for it, going to, you know, it's on YouTube, it's all over the internet, etc. So it's one thing to be tricked or deceived or led astray by false teaching, but what about those who are leading others astray? What motivates someone to say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lead some people astray. Well, let's talk about that. What motivates false teachers? At the end of chapter one, which we looked at last week, uh, Peter talked about, he said, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed even than, than our own experiences about God. We have the prophetic word that we look to. And he talked about how people throughout history have been moved along, carried along by the Holy Spirit, inspired to speak the words of God and they've done so faithfully. Now, in contrast to that, now he starts chapter two. He says, okay, in contrast to those people who faithfully, truly are carried along by the Holy Spirit and present the words of God, there are other people. There are people who don't do that. There are false prophets who speak words that are not from God. And what Peter tells us is, just as there were false prophets 
among the people of God in the past, right, like in the Old Testament, there will also be false teachers among you today. And that's interesting, right? They're going to be among us. If they're among us, and Jesus said they're dressed as us, then how are we supposed to recognize them? Well, Peter's going to give us some guidance here in this chapter. But something you might ask is this. What might motivate someone to teach or promote false doctrines? I mean, it just seems kind of like a strange thing to do, don't you think? Like, why would, why would, what would be the point of telling somebody and, and intentionally spreading incorrect information? If the sky's blue, why would I go outside and tell you it's green? What would motivate me to do something like that? Well, here in this section, Peter is going to give us a few reasons which motivate people to knowingly promote and teach false doctrines. Okay, but first, let's talk about this. There are two kinds of false teachers. We need to acknowledge that. There are two kinds of false teachers. Number one, there are those who do so from ignorance, right? So they're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. And then you have people who do so from bad motives. So ignorance and bad motives, two different reasons why people do it. Now, those who do so from ignorance, they don't necessarily have bad intentions. They might be, be misinformed themselves or somebody else led them astray and they're just continuing on. They might believe wholeheartedly that what they're saying is correct, but that doesn't make it correct, okay? So this would be like, you know, you get these Mormon missionaries or, or different groups who might knock on your door. 18-year-old kids been raised in some group. They're sincere and they believe that what they're teaching is, is the truth and it's correct, and yet it's not. So we should approach people like that with empathy, compassion, kindness, patience, and grace. Understanding that they're completely sincere, even if they're sincerely wrong. And that's totally possible, right? People used to believe that smoking was good for you. Like doctors used to prescribe smoking. Oh, you got that problem? You should uh, try smoking. That'll fix it. Um, and now we know, nope, that turns out that's not a good idea, right? So they sincerely believed it was. Turns out it wasn't. That happens a lot. So something doesn't just become true just because you really, really believe it's true. In Acts chapter 18, we read about a guy named Apollos. Apollos was sincere. He was just misinformed. He was a Jew who was teaching and preaching from the Bible. And in fact, he was even preaching about Jesus, which is so interesting. He was preaching about Jesus, but he didn't have the full story of Jesus. He didn't have his facts straight on Jesus. And so as a result, he was preaching and teaching things about Jesus, which were not true. And so it says there in Acts chapter 18 that this married couple who we, who we read about in our last study, right, Aquila and Priscilla, they come, they're leaders in the church in Ephesus, they come, they meet this guy Apollos, and they take him under their wing, and they say, Apollos, hey, this is awesome that you're preaching and teaching stuff about Jesus, we love Jesus too, there's part of the story that you don't know, some of your doctrine's a little off, please, let us explain this to you, let us walk you through it, and what happens in the end, Apollos is like, Got it. Thank you. Corrected. Goes on and starts preaching good doctrine and accurately. And he's an example of someone who's preaching false things, um, but not out of malice, right, or, or a desire to mislead, simply because he didn't know better. And, and when he was taught, he was open and receptive to being taught and corrected, and he received it graciously. So there, there's a great example right there. Um, so there are people who do things out of ignorance. But those are not the kind of people Peter's talking about here in 2 Peter chapter 2. The people Peter has in mind here in chapter 2 are those who, he says, boldly and willfully teach false things from bad motives. He says in verse 10, they're bold, they're willful, they despise authority. They are people who teach false things for bad motives. 
Uh, there's a sense of intentionality that goes with it. Uh, that's why they're called wolves. Now, you know, there's kind of people are categorized kind of in the Bible into three different animal types, three different animal types. Those are sheep, goats, and wolves. Uh, my grandfather used to have a, a ranch in southern Oregon. I used to go up there when I was a kid. And he had lots of animals, but he also, my favorite was to hang out with the sheep and the goats. And why? Because sheep and goats actually like to hang out together. They graze together. They get along very well. So they'll always kind of be mixed together. If you put sheep and goats within the same fence, they'll just hang out together. And in the New Testament, we see an example. Jesus talking like that. He says that at the end of time, at the great judgment, he will come and he will separate the sheep from the goats. Now, again, I mentioned to you earlier that the, the sheep speaks of the people of God. And I'll just quickly tell you this. When the Bible says that we are sheep and God is our shepherd, that is a well-intentioned, loving insult of sorts, okay? Because um, when God says, you know, think about it like this. Why does God say, you are the sheep and I am the shepherd? Why doesn't he say, you are the horse and I am the horse trainer? The reason is because sheep need a shepherd in a way that a horse doesn't need a horse trainer. A horse, tra a horse without a horse trainer goes wild. A sheep without a shepherd dies. Sheep have no natural uh, defenses. They're not even good at running away. They get lost. They have a horrible sense of direction. If they see grass, they'll go towards that grass even if it's on the other side of a cliff. And, and it's not uncommon for sheep to walk off cliffs or to get in, stuck in spots and have to get saved, right? Or to walk right into danger. Uh, they, they're just not great at many things. They can't take care of them. You never see, you're never going to go out like driving and see just a herd of wild sheep just enjoying nature. It doesn't happen. Why? Because they die. They need a shepherd for food, for protection. They can't live without a shepherd. And so the worst thing a sheep could do is to run away from its shepherd and yet that is what they constantly do. And God says, yeah, that's kind of like you guys, right? Like, uh, and God says, that's a picture of you. See, we belong to him. We depend on him. And we need him for everything. He leads us. He feeds us. He pursues us when we go astray, which we do. And he brings us home. We are his sheep, and he's the good shepherd. So if we are his sheep, then what do the goats represent? Well, they represent people who are not sheep, but neither are they wolves. See, this is really important. It's not that there are only sheep and wolves. There are sheep and there are goats, right? Goats hang out with sheep. They're not a danger to sheep. They get along. They eat side by side. And yet, they don't know God as their shepherd. And that is really important. And we, we read about that in Matthew 25. So, goats are not sheep. But here's what's cool. The promise of the gospel is that because of what Jesus did for us, we can become new creations, Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We can become new creations. In other words, goats can become sheep. And guess what? Everybody who's a sheep today used to be a goat. All of us who are sheep today, we used to be goats. That's how we started out. So our goal and our mission is not to live a goat-free life. I hope you know that. Our goal is not to live a goat-free life. Our goal is not to be like, we're sheep and we need to get away from these goats. Our goal is to help goats become sheep by introducing them to the shepherd and inviting them to join the flock. In addition to goats and sheep, though, we're told there are wolves. And wolves, they don't hang out with sheep. They eat sheep. They hurt sheep. They want to use sheep to satisfy their own carnal desires. 
They're dangerous to sheep because they don't have sheep's best interest in mind. Let's put it that way. They want to use them, eat them, devour them. So it's been said that the job of a spiritual shepherd, right, like a pastor we call a spiritual shepherd, uh, a leader in the church, the job of a, a leader in the church is to feed the sheep, love the goats, and shoot the wolves. So feed the sheep, love the goats, and shoot the wolves. We don't shoot the goats. Let me be clear on that. We don't shoot the goats. We love the goats. We want the goats to hang out with us because we want them to become sheep too. But we do need to deal with the wolves. And wolves are, are identified by their intentions, their intentions. So let's talk about what some of those motives are. Verse 1, he says, they have secretly brought in destructive heresies. This is an idea of like smuggling in contraband, right? Something foreign, something destructive, something dangerous. Now, now imagine I come up to you one day and I say, Come here. I've got some destructive heresies. Do you want to hear them? Do you, would you like to believe them? Would you like to sign on the dotted line for these heresies? Maybe some of you say, yes, where do I sign up? I would love to believe some things which are, first of all, not true, and secondly, are going to destroy my soul. Where do I sign up for that? Why is it that anyone in their right mind would be attracted to things which are, first of all, not true, and secondly, destructive to your soul. Well, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but will have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves, and they will accumulate teachers, basically, who will tell them what they want to hear, to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth, and they'll wander off into myths. Paul is telling us that the reason people are attracted to harmful heresies is because these heresies promise shortcuts. They promise shortcuts to getting the things that people want. And the problem is that these false teachings, what they give is they give false hope. Now probably, if I were to summarize, what are the two most common false teachings that I think uh, plague the church today? I would say they are two things. One is um, legalism, and the other one is the pro what's called the prosperity gospel. They're actually cousins. They're super closely related. Now, uh, a these were also around 2,000 years ago when the Bible was being written. Let me just run you quickly through them. Legalism is the teaching that your salvation before God, and I mean, sorry, your standing before God, and ultimately your salvation depends on your performance. You know, do good enough, try hard enough, and you can earn God's love. You can get God to uh, give you blessings. You can prove to God that you are worthy of those things, and ultimately you can work your way to heaven. Now, first of all, that's heresy. It's not true. It's completely contrary to the gospel. But it's also dangerous, and I'll tell you why. The, the message of the gospel is this, though. Let me give you the, the accurate part. It's that your standing before God does not depend on your performance. Your standing before God depends on what Jesus did for you. His performance, you might say, in, in living a, a sinless life, the life that you should have lived, in dying a sacrificial death, taking your place in death. Uh, in his life, death, and resurrection. That's what it's based on, what Jesus did. And what that means is if it's based on Jesus and what he did, then God's love and God's blessings and your salvation are not things that you earn. They're gifts that you receive. And so furthermore, since God's love and God's acceptance of you is based on what Jesus did, that means it's stable, right? If you have a bad week, guess what? He still loves you. He still accepts you in Christ because what Jesus did doesn't change. It is finished. So uh, when, it, when it comes, though, to earning and deserving, right, the Bible tells us there's, there's something we have earned and deserved from God. It says the wages of sin is death, and we've all sinned. 
And yet, instead of judgment and death, God offers us life and liberty in Jesus. So the message of the gospel is that Jesus took the judgment you deserve so that you could receive the blessings that only he deserved. He, on the cross, Jesus was treated the way that we deserve to be treated so that we could then be, to be treated instead the way that only he deserves to be treated. That's why we call it grace. Now, why would anyone want legalism rather than grace? Well, one main reason is this. Legalism gives you the illusion of being in control. It allows you also to take credit for the blessings in your life, right? So if something goes good, you can say, well, that's because I'm pretty awesome and I pray a lot, right? Um, and yet, legalism has a dark side, has a shadow side. See, uh, it, this is why it's a destructive heresy. Here's why. First of all, on the best days, legalism leads to pride, which, which is really bad. So when things are going well, like I said, you pat yourself on the back, you get proud of yourself, you take credit for earning God's blessings because you're so awesome and you did all those great things. And then, guess what happens? You look down on others because, um, you know, things aren't going as well in their lives. Well, that must be a sign that they're not as awesome as you are and they have, uh, you know, they're a bunch of mess-ups and failures. So that means you can look your no down your nose at them. God must be upset with them because he obviously likes me more than he likes them. And so on the one hand, legalism leads to pride, and pride is spiritual poison. It says in the Bible, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride was the sin of Satan that caused his downfall and, and his eternal destiny. And guess what? Pride is, is a real threat for us. It's not just uh, a bad habit. It's something inside of us which has a potential to rise up and destroy us. So we don't want to feed pride, and legalism feeds pride. But it also leads to despair, because guess what? When you're not doing well, or when something doesn't go on in your life, that's when you start asking questions like, this isn't fair, God. What did I do to deserve this? I've done all the right things, God. I don't deserve this bad thing happening to me. Do you not love me anymore, right? Or, or maybe you mess up and then you feel like God doesn't like you anymore or that you're, he's not going to bless you anymore. No, that's, that's a legalistic mindset. And, and, you know, a cousin to legalism is this prosperity idea. Prosperity, essentially, this prosperity gospel says this, that the point of Jesus' coming was so that you can be healthy, wealthy, and that's all, right? Like healthy and wealthy. And if you're not healthy and wealthy, right? Like if you uh, have financial trouble, you lose your job, you get lupus, MS, cancer. Well, I mean, you're, you're obviously probably not praying hard enough and uh, you need to give more and you need to do more. And that, those are signs that you, you're not doing enough and you're not pulling your weight. That's a destructive heresy. It ruins souls. It ruins lives. And guess what? Everybody who's ever lived before us, with the exception of like three guys, they're all dead, okay? So if we're all going to die. The hope of the gospel is not health and wealth right now. The hope of the gospel is the kingdom of God, which is here now. We have God's presence and power with us here now, and we have the hope of eternal life, which is to come, the kingdom of God, which is to come. And guys, guess where prosperity teaching is most popular? Do you think it's most popular in places where people are wealthy and prosperous or most popular in places where people are poor? Unequivocally, it is popular in places where people are poor. It's popular in Africa, where I lived in Hungary. It was popular amongst the poorest population, the gypsy population. And why? Well, because it feeds on greed. And what it says is, it's almost like a get-rich-quick scheme, right? Instead of doing some business, you, you do these things. Go to these meetings. Give to this thing this certain amount of seed money. And then, you know, you're going to get rich and prosperous. And so 
this doctrine, of course, ignores the fact of Jesus being the holiest, godliest person who ever lived, and yet he was never rich. He never had a pillow to lay his head on. He died a suffering death. And of course, it ignores the prophets and the apostles who were godly people and were never rich. Peter himself, as he writes this, he's a couple weeks, months, years away from being executed for his faith. So, so that whole idea is a destructive heresy. Jesus said, in this world you have tribulation, but do not worry because I have overcome this world. So that's the hope of the gospel. Legalism is, is destructive. Its cousin, prosperity gospel, is destructive. So what motivates these teachers? Well, let's just look through the text and make some notes. First of all, a lack of reverence for God. A lack of reverence for God, verses 1 and 2. Peter says they deny the master who bought them, and they don't care that they lead other people into blasphemy as well. You know, false doctrine is always an attack on God's character. So that's a, that's a form of blasphemy. Second, greed. Greed motivates them. This is verse 3 and then later on. In greed, they exploit you with false words. So we read about this in other places in the Bible too, right? People who use their position or religion in order for sordid gain. Certainly, there are plenty of examples that we can point to of people who've used religion in order to get rich off of other people. An example that's mentioned here in our text is Balaam. Now, Balaam's story is found in Numbers 22 through 24. If you're interested, check that out. Numbers 22 through 24. Here's the deal with Balaam. He was a Jewish prophet who accepted a bribe from the enemies of God, and in exchange for money, he agreed to prophesy curse against the people of God. Now, it didn't work out. You'll have to read the story to find out what happened. But the point is that that's an example of a false prophet motivated by greed. But it's not always greed for money. It could be greed for power. The point is, the aim is not to serve and help people, but to use people in order to get things that you want. Finally, there's pride. Pride, it says in verse 10, is a motivator. The, the very first false teacher in the Bible was the serpent in the Garden of Eden, motivated by pride to twist the words of God and, and make empty promises and challenge the character of God. It was a false teaching, and as we've seen, it's very destructive. Behind it was pride. It says, verse 2, many will follow them in their sensuality and blaspheme the way of truth. So just because a lot of people are doing something doesn't mean that that's a good thing to do. Jesus said, wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Peter tells us in verse 3 that in due time, God is going to deal with those who do false prophecy, who are wolves. And you might ask, well, why doesn't God deal with them now? Why is God waiting to deal with them in due time? Why wait? Do you want to know the answer? You're going to have to wait till next week because next week we talk about our message is called the patience of God. And it talks about why God waits both in salvation and in judgment. So don't miss that. Next week we're going to answer that question, our study called, our final study in the series, the patience of God. But from verses 4 to 8 then, Peter reminds us of some times in history where God has brought judgment. He reminds us of angels, like fallen angels who have uh, rebelled against God and were cast into hell. He reminds us of judgment in the time of Noah and the flood. He reminds us of the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. But in each of these cases, there, were, there was a judgment of God, but there was also salvation in the midst of the judgment. There were people who were saved. And here's the point Peter's making. God's judgment is inevitable, but it's not unavoidable. And that's kind of the, the final big thought I'd like to leave you with today, is this. God's judgment is inevitable, but it's not unavoidable. See, there is coming a day of reckoning and judgment, and that's inevitable. 
But it's not unavoidable. Because if you are in Christ, Jesus has taken the judgment for your sins so that you can be saved. If you're here and you've never put your trust in Jesus, never stepped across that line and put down your yes and said, okay, I'm in. I give you my life, Jesus. You need to know this. God's judgment is inevitable, but it is not unavoidable. Rather than receiving the judgment of God, you can receive the salvation of God through Jesus. And the way you do that is by no longer trusting in yourself that you're good enough and smart enough to save yourself or, or for God to accept you that you can earn it. And instead of trusting yourself, you look to Jesus to be your salvation, his actions on your behalf as the basis for your acceptance and standing before God. If you do that, then you'll be on the receiving end of salvation from God rather than judgment from God. And finally, and this will be fast, the how to recognize false teaching. There's a lot that could be said under this title, but I want to leave you with this. Verse 17, he says that these teachers are waterless springs, waterless springs. There was a time when Jesus spoke with a woman at a well. John chapter 4, the gospel of John chapter 4. And Jesus told her, if you drink the water from that well, you're just, you'll eventually get thirsty again. That's how our bodies work. But if you drink the water that I give you, the spiritual water, then you will never thirst again. And later on in John chapter 7, Jesus declared, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Guys, the way to spot a false teacher is that they make a lot of promises, but they're disconnected from the source of living water, which is Jesus. False teaching points you to yourself or some religious leader but it doesn't connect you to the source of living water, which is Jesus. Guys, whatever you're going through right now, wherever you need hope, wherever you need strength, wherever you need life, it's found in Jesus. If you're thirsty, come to him. Come to the source, the source of God's grace, the source of satisfaction, the source of strength, the source of salvation. And believe in him as the scriptures have declared. Not only will you be satisfied, but you will overflow and become a blessing to others. Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. And Lord, we pray that you would protect us from destructive heresies. Lord, none of us, uh, no, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to believe a destructive heresy. So Lord, help us that we would see teachings and we would judge them by this. Do they lead us back to the source of living water? Do they lead us back to you, Jesus? And Lord, may we come to you today with the needs that we have, with the hope that we need. Lord, with the salvation that we need, with the strength we need for today, knowing that you are the source of living water and we're coming to you to receive everything we need because you are good and you are gracious. And we remember this in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.